to stand out of respect for God's inspired word. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. And some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will rebuild, return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with, Barna with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some of you have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after that, they spent some time. They were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. 
But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Bad government is a real problem. You don't have to look very far to see this. Just interview a refugee who's lived under a dictatorship, and they'll tell you all about it. Say, hey, I don't want to go back to that. I'm so glad I got away from that, uh, that tyrant and his control and, 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 and the way that he'd shaped his government. Uh, or talk to someone who grew up in an anarchy. Now, there's only been a few of these in history, but... There have been anarchies, and, and you'll talk to people who've lived in total chaos uh, with no structure, no government um, helping and directing things at all, and they'll also tell you, hey, don't go to that. That's a bad idea. Flee from that. Bad government is a serious problem. It hurts people. It affects families. And it's true in the civil sphere, and there's also a real sense in which it's true in the church. Because whether you like it or not, the church has a government. You know, there are churches that say, oh, we, we don't, we don't uh, have a church government. Well, that itself is, is a government. It's a decision uh, uh, to have a kind of anarchy within the church. Now, countless Christians, and you can talk, maybe, maybe you're one of them. Maybe you've grown up in a church uh, that, that was shaped by a polity, a government, uh, that just made bad decisions. And you've been hurt by it. You've been hurt by bad leadership. You've been hurt by abuse in the church, abuse that wasn't stopped. You've been hurt by, by, uh, by, by bad doctrine, bad teaching that no one stopped and no one was able to, to, to silence. Bad government is a serious problem. Yes, in civil society, but in the church. And what I want you to hear today is that King Jesus hasn't left his church guessing what kind of government he would have them to implement. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, we see this window into the government of the church. We see it functioning. We see its mechanics. We see what it's doing. And we see what it's doing not just on the local level, but also on the regional level. And that's really important because what we see in this chapter is basically the ABCs of how Jesus runs his church. Jesus loves us too much to leave leave us guessing about how we ought to be governed. And so he gives us directions. And he gives us directions in the form of, of, of showing us through the apostles what you do when there is a controversy that affects the local church, affects the broader regional church. Now, I want you to notice, before I dive straight into this, that yes, church government matters. Yes, it's important, but it also is clearly a secondary issue, right? There are Christians that I know and love that don't share my convictions that that I think are taught in God's word about church government. So I want to say that. And that's why last week we started with the thing that all Christians do agree with. We looked at Acts chapter 15 and we saw that we are saved by grace alone. By faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. There's no other way to be saved than through faith in him. 
But then we have to go back through and we have to see, well, that's not the only thing that's here. There's something else in the text that Jesus wants us to see. And though it's not of first and primary importance, that doesn't mean it's not important. He wants us to see church government. He wants us to care about church government because it's his gift to his church until he returns. Well, let's look at these principles that King Jesus provides for us here. Yes, King Jesus is king of his church. He's ruling over his church. He's on his throne right now. And that means that uh, there's a real sense in which the church government is a monarchy. There's only one king, and that's Jesus. And no one else is king. Jesus alone. And so we turn to him to see what rules he would establish. We don't get to just choose that for ourselves and say, you know, I, I think I came up with a really cool way to run the church. That way is probably going to drive the church to destruction because only Jesus sitting on his throne with all his care for the church can really direct and govern and know what's best for us. And so what we see here is beautiful. We see a biblical polity and that the word polity means what? Government, church government, a biblical polity. And then I want us to to see by the end of the sermon that it's not just biblical. It's not just there, but it's, it's truly beneficial to us. We should thank thank the Lord for it. What principles does King Jesus provide for us here in Acts chapter 15? Well, the first thing we see, and let me just actually rattle these off. We see in Acts chapter 15, connected congregations represented by elders, regulated by the scriptures. Connected congregations represented by elders, regulated by the scriptures. Well, notice, first of all, connected congregations. Remember what the context is here. Remember what's going on. Men are coming down from Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's up on a, on a mountain, kind of, and they're coming down, and they're going 300 miles north to Antioch, and these men are saying, hey, we're Christians, but we think you guys in Antioch are missing, are missing something. We're so glad that the Gentiles, that non-Jews, are being um, welcomed into the church, but we're not so glad about how you're doing it. You're saying that all they have to do is believe in Jesus. We think that they need something else. They need to be circumcised. They need to become Jews. And the church in Antioch, of course, says, wait, what are you talking about? No way. And these guys are like, yes way. This is a serious problem. You, you, you need, you're not Christians unless you're circumcised. And there's this debate that erupts between, um, uh, between members, genuine members of Christ's church. It threatens to, uh, to cause great division, a great divide. And it threatens the gospel, of course, right? That's what we established last week. Well, notice what the church in Antioch doesn't do. It doesn't tell Jerusalem. Mind your own business. Antioch doesn't say, hey, back off. We are an independent church. You you worry about your own matters. We're going to worry about about us. Go back to Jerusalem and we'll have our own kind of council. We'll get our elders together and we'll figure things out. And maybe we'll let you know what we decided. No, we don't see that. Because what we see here is connected congregations. So connected that what happens is uh, we have the first, <laughs> the first Presbyterian church of Antioch and the first Presbyterian church of Jerusalem, and they meet for the first Presbyterian meeting. That's what I believe is happening here. Connected churches that get together and say, okay, we're, we're not going to, to tell you to back off. We're not going to make decisions on our own. We're going to do it together. 
as one body, as an expression of the unity of Christ. This isn't the first time that we've seen the church treated in this way. Actually, in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, I want you to notice how the church is defined. Um, we're, we're talking about the church, and we're hearing that. So the church throughout all Judea, in Galilee, in Samaria, had peace and was being built up. The definition of the church there reaches past the local congregation, right? It, it reaches past the you know, first church of Antioch, first church of Jerusalem, and really says, hey, the church includes all of these local expressions. And so you can talk about local churches. You can call them the church, but you can also look at the whole church and call it the church. Now, the next question is, okay, um, if that's true, if that's true and they're really united as one church, then shouldn't their church government reflect that? Shouldn't there be some sense in which they're connected and their unity is expressed in a meeting in which the decisions are made as one body? And that's exactly what we see here in Acts chapter 15. You can flip back there. Acts chapter 15, a sizable portion and spread over the large regions is called the church and treated as the church. They gather as a presbytery, as, you know, of course, I, I'm using that word, uh, but, but I really do think that's, that's essentially what's happening. A council, a presbytery, a meeting um, that involves the churches. So I think this is the first step of biblical polity, connected congregations. But also we see connected congregations represented by elders. It's so interesting, isn't it, what happens? Um, if you flip back to Acts chapter 14, you'll notice that in verse 23, um, Paul is going and he's planting churches and they appoint elders, plural, for them in every church. So at this point, what you have is in, in all of the local expressions of Christ's universal church, you've got elders. And not just one of them, because there's no one guy who rules and, you know, there, there's not Pastor Dietrich who, who, says, who says it and it's done. There's Pastor Dietrich, there's Elder Jones, and there's Elder Wagner, and there's, um, there's uh, Pastor Peppo. And we hold one another accountable on this local level. We, we represent you as your leaders. But what happens when there's a division or an issue or something that involves not just the local level, but also the broader regional level? Well, we see exactly what happens in Acts chapter 15, don't we? When there's an issue on the local level, those elders uh, that, that are on the local level are tasked with representing on the regional level. And that's exactly what we see, Acts chapter 15, that uh, there were appointed apostles and elders to go to Jerusalem for this meeting. And then uh, also other churches, including um, Jerusalem, are, are appointing their own uh, representatives. And then here's what's really interesting to me. Apostles are present, but notice that they're not running the show. They're not using their apostolic credentials as a kind of trump card. Did you notice that? They're not showing up and saying... Okay, we know this, there's this debate. All you elders, sit down, listen to us. We're apostles. We, ha we, we have directions for you. No, they're not doing that. Instead, they come and, and they, get, they, they summon this meeting and then they kind of sit back and they're acting themselves like elders. And they join the debate, not as higher ups, but as equals. Peter gives his speech. But is Peter's, Peter's speech the final word? No. 
That's something that the papacy can sh- should consider, by the way, right? Not the fine. Peter's word is not the final word. Whose word is the final word? James. James. And is James an apostle? No. James is just, he's an elder. He's an elder of, uh, in the church in Jerusalem. And he gets up and it's his word that really seals the deal, closes the case. He says, yeah, what Peter's saying is great, but I have something to say. And then, and then the whole body says, yeah, what he just said, that's what we want to adopt. Yays, nays, motion adopted. And what do they do? They send the letter. And that letter is received by the church as an official um, uh, result of this process. And so what I think is actually happening here is the apostles are present, but the apostles are showing us the process that's going to go on in the life of the church after they cease uh, from their primary role um, in the early stages of the church. You know, there's a, Philadelphia, there's a Philadelphia phrase that I learned when I was in Philly. It's trust the process. I think it came out of a Philadelphia basketball team. This, uh, yeah, trust the process. I think what the apostles are doing here is showing us trust the process. Get the elders together. And there's an issue. They'll debate. They'll come to a consensus. Be delivered to the church. But notice. Notice this. The decision is regulated by the scriptures. It's not just that they came together and that what they decided is the final word. It's that the final word is under the testing and discernment and instruction of God's holy word. It's not until James says, hey, look, and the Bible says this too, and that's why we should adopt it, that they say, yep, that's clear. We shouldn't require the Gentiles to be circumcised. Grace alone by faith alone. The Bible teaches that. I'm going to quote a theologian here. I think he he says this really well. All the decrees and determinations of councils and church courts should be regulated by the word of God. It's God's word. It's the law of King Jesus that dictates what our leadership does. And that means that we as your leaders in this church just can't come and tell you whatever we want, right? Can't tell you to to dress a certain way um, unless we can back that up from the word of God. We can't tell you, um, you know, that that you must go uh, to certain functions of the church uh, that uh, the word of God does not say you ought to do this. We can say you ought to be gathering as the church. You ought to be coming on Sunday morning, the Lord's Day. We have the authority to do that. But there are places where our authority stops because God's word stops it. Notice what happens. They arrive at this conclusion. Connected congregations, represented by elders, regulated by the scriptures. And when they pass down this decision, it's, it's delivered as a decision to be received and adopted by the congregations. Not just fancy advice. But directions for the churches. Not hierarchy. Not independency. But something Beautiful, I guess you could say in the middle, where, where you have representation by elders, connected congregations, regulated by the scriptures. Why does this matter for us? It matters for us because the government that King Jesus gave to his church is intended to bless us. It's intended to bless us. Let me note just several ways in which the government that Christ gave the church really is beneficial. 
You're saying, hey, this has been interesting so far, Pastor, but you know, why do I need to hear this? I'm going to tell you that. The government that Jesus, King Jesus gave to his church helps us to humbly acknowledge that the church is wider than our local congregation. You know, we, we need to remember that sometimes. We need to remember that because all of us as um, Americans, as uh, uh, you know, who, who love our rights and, 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 uh, and, and who love our, our independency from, from Great Britain, <laughs> love to say, uh, love, love to think in terms of being independent and at times even isolated. But when it comes to church government, we need to proceed carefully. In fact, what Presbyterianism does is it offers us a subtle kind of rebuke when we go too far with that. And what biblical church government does is say, hang on, wait a second. Don't get so isolated into your local congregation that you forget that the church is actually broader than that. And there is one holy Catholic apostolic church. We say the word Catholic there. We're not saying big C. We're saying little C. Universal church. Wherever the gospel is preached. Wherever Jesus has established his command. That's the church. That's the church. And that can be a really humbling thing to admit that. Because sometimes we have disagreements with other churches. Sometimes there are tensions. Different styles. Um, and and, and we wanna, we, we'd love to just say, no, here's my church and it's the best. And no one else really has it right. And it's really good to be able to hear, like, no, humble yourself to see that Jesus' church extends beyond local borders. Here's why that's important. The government that King Jesus gave to his church helps us to humbly acknowledge that his church is wider than our local congregation. It also helps us to um, to provide a necessary kind of accountability. Guards against abuses. You think there are abuses ever in the church? Yeah. Have you ever experienced abuses in the church? Yeah, probably. I hope not. But in all odds, probably. And Jesus cares about his church so much that he establishes a kind of accountability. There is no lone ranger Christian. Someone who's just kind of doing it for themselves, no membership, no accountability to a local church. Jesus says, if you become a Christian, you need to get put under leadership, under a, a plurality of elders, not just one guy, not just a bishop, but, 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 but several elders who can uh, shepherd you and take account of your life and say, yeah, that person's walking with the Lord. No, there's, there's a problem here. We need to talk with this person. And we can't say with confidence that, that they're in good standing with Jesus. We need that. I need that. You need that. Why? Because we are sheep who stray. We need a plurality of elders on the local level who know us and know us well, know us enough to say, uh, I need to get involved in your life right now because I love you. Now, guess what? I need that as a leader. I need, and I, and I see this every time I meet with, with Pastor Brad, with Mr. Wagner, with Mr. Jones. 
that I need those brothers to hear what I'm doing and the kind of counsel I'm extending to you as sheep so that they can tell me if I'm crossing a line or they can pull me back and they can help me make decisions that aren't bad for the church. And it's not my decision. It's our decision for the life of the church. That's called accountability. Now, let me take it another level. Do you think, do you, do you think that a session, a local group of elders, needs accountability? Yes. Because I've seen a local group of elders also become kind of an echo chamber and no, 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 I just want to listen to my, we just want to listen to ourselves. And what sessions need are other sessions, other elders listening to the decisions they're making and saying, oh, there's a problem here. What if I came and and preached next week and told you something off the wall? Here's my typical example. What if I came up and said, you know, I've been reading the Bible and I just don't think that hell is real. That's not true. Hell is very real. But what if I said that it wasn't? And then you came up to me and you started talking to me after service. You said, Pastor Dietrich, this is, this is an issue. We, we don't think this is just like a secondary thing. We think this is really important and affects like, the Christian life. This is clearly in the Bible. Um, and I heard you out. We met several times. And yet I just wasn't listening. What would you do next? Well, you'd go to the elders. You'd say, do you know what Pastor Dietrich's teaching? What are you, what are you saying about this? Are you holding him accountable to this? And what if they said, well, we've talked with Pastor Dietrich and we agree. What would you do then? If all you have is that, then you stop and you go to another church. You just leave because, because there's no accountability beyond that. You say, I hope these elders just see that they're wrong sometime. But if you have accountability that reaches beyond that, if you have a presbytery that does what Acts 15 does, and you've got me saying crazy things, and you've got the elders saying crazy things, then guess what? You can come to me and ask me, uh, uh, for how you can, you, you can bring me to account before Presbytery, and I will give you the form, and you can do that. And you can come and, rep, and, and represent before Presbytery and state before Presbytery that I am not following God's word, and I would invite you to do that. I do invite you to do that if, I, if you ever see me in error that I'm not um, accountable to. That's the beauty of, 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 of guardianship over the gospel, whether it's an error in faith or life, or doctrine, uh, there's, there's no Lone Ranger Christian, there's no Lone Ranger pastor, there's no Lone Ranger session, and, and, um, and, and the government which Christ Jesus gives to the church holds uh, the church accountable to Christ alone. Beautiful thing. Beneficial thing for the church. But let me not stop there. Let me also note that the government that Jesus gave his church enables the church to grow in unity. You know, when I think of Presbytery and I talk to you about Presbytery, it's meeting in a few weeks, by the way. We meet twice a year. I often talk about Presbytery as like, hey, they hold us accountable. But the other thing I love about Presbytery is the kind of support it provides. You know, if there's a church that's struggling financially, all the other churches pull pull resources because they say, we're not independent, we're connected. And when one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Let's help you. And when there are gifts that are lacking, maybe there's a church that, that, that needs another elder. You know, I've seen this happen. I saw it happen in Wilmington. Redeemer donated elders so that the church in Wilmington could get off the ground and get its feet stable. A beautiful and beneficial thing. What's this ultimately an expression of? It's an expression of Christ's love for the church. Chapter 16, verse 4 says this. 
As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. And listen to this. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. You ever think about that? That good church government actually is important for evangelism? It's important witness to the church. It helps the church grow. It gives the church the kind of stability and accountability and support where where you see church planting happen rapidly. It's great. How do we respond to these things? Very briefly, we ought to approve of Christ's government for his church. We ought to see it and say, yes and amen. We ought to avoid all attempts to try to kind of pull ourselves out under, under uh, authority of leadership that ought to be over us. We ought to say, yeah, I'm going to take this. Even if one day it hurts me and I don't like the decision that's given to me, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to submit myself to this kind of leadership that Christ has laid out in his word. Right? Prove it. The second thing, though, is that we ought to support our leaders. We ought to actively support our leaders. The the scripture calls you to give the elders of this church the kind of deference and respect and and, submission in the Lord uh, that the Bible presents. And then it calls me to show the same kind of respect and submission and accountability to uh, my other elders and and the elders in presbytery um, that, that that I ought to give to them. And so this is just a reminder to you. Don't try to pull back or hide things from your leaders. Bring to your leaders what they ought to hear, for they are keeping watch over your souls. This is a good thing for you. You don't hide from the doctor. (laughs) Something really wrong going on with you. You don't try to hide and say, well, I can just self-medicate. I'll just do it myself. You go to those who have been tasked with helping. So you don't hide. You know, grave spiritual ills from your leaders. It's important. And finally, and here's where we ought to end. Praise God for his care for the church. Praise God that he thought things through further than us. And he's provided something that's beautiful and helpful and beneficial. Not something to be pushed against, but something to be embraced. This is an opportunity to just say, Jesus, I don't think about church government often. And I know I don't have to. But today, when we're focusing on it, in Acts chapter 15, thank you. Thank you. Let's go to him in prayer.